This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 8th of July 2023. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programmes, we'll have a leaf through the morning's papers from across the world with Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Plus... If you're looking for something contemporary, if you're looking for music, something experimental, avant-garde, you can find everything in flamenco. And that is something new that was not like that 20 years ago. We'll tell you all about flamenco and the Flamenco Festival. Olé! That's all coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here's the news. The United States announced yesterday that it would supply Ukraine with widely banned cluster munitions for its counteroffensive against occupying Russian forces. These weapons are prohibited by more than 100 countries, but Russia, Ukraine and the United States have not signed on to the Convention on Cluster Munitions, which bans production, stockpiling, use and transfer of them. The Dutch government has collapsed after failing to reach a deal on restricting immigration. This will trigger new elections in the autumn. The crisis was triggered by a push by Prime Minister Mark Rutte's Conservative VVD party to limit the flow of asylum seekers to the Netherlands, which two of his four-party government coalition refused to support. Rutte's coalition will stay on as a caretaker government until a new administration is formed after new elections, a process which, in the fractured Dutch political landscape, usually takes months. And the United States and China, as the world's two largest economies, must work together to combat the existential threat of climate change, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told Chinese government officials and climate experts today. During a visit to Beijing, Yellen said previous cooperation on climate change between the US and China had made possible global breakthroughs, such as the 2015 Paris Agreement, adding that both governments wanted to support emerging markets and developing countries as they strive to meet their climate goals. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and in the studio with me is Latika Burke. Good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Georgina. Very balmy, muggy morning, isn't it? It is quite muggy, isn't it? But you know, you always look fabulous at what... At whatever time of day. It's usually very early in the morning that I see you and you're kind of, you know, all bright. And That's a very reassuring thing to say because one of the, I think, maybe mistakes I've made was getting a smartwatch which monitors my sleep and I'm actually alarmed at how little I sleep. Really? Yeah, like sometimes three, four hours. Okay. This morning was five. That's a good that's, morning for me. That's quite good. Although, I mean, famously, I mean, people like Margaret Thatcher only ever did four know, hours a night. I know. Um, and you're meant to be able to, to cope quite well on that. I drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> as you can hear. <laughs> yeah, my sleep too is, is horrific, but I think I'm kind of used to it. I mean, I've, I've got up at sort of half past four in the morning for, for radio shows for the better part of, I don't know, 25 years. <laughs> I do find, though, that in the summer in the UK, you just don't seem to need to sleep as long. Mm. The light wakes you up. You don't need to eat as much. Is that just me? 
No, I definitely I, I don't eat as much yeah, during summer. Yeah, and uh, a great tip I got from um, Emma Nelson, uh, and so we both now have these Lumi lights. What's a it, Lumi light? It's, it's fantastic. It just wakes you up very gradually with light, so that oh, the, like on an on a uh, plane. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's wonderful. So you wake up and it's kind of, you wake up to, to brightness, even though it's, you know, I mean, it annoys the hell out of my partner. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a cat and she wakes up when the sun wakes up. So I don't know if a loomy light would work on her. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the news. So, of course, we're reporting what's happened with the Dutch government. Uh, and uh, the FT has a, a big piece about that. Yeah, really, I think a surprise. Um, Of course, it's no surprise that uh, the Dutch government has been uh, at odds in itself, a four-party coalition and never a recipe for stability, you'd think, uh, over immigration. And the Netherlands has always been one of the European countries that has taken a a tough stance on immigration. And in fact, um, being Australian, it's one of the things that has actually connected the Netherlands with Australia over time. They've kind of looked at Australian options about how to deal with uh, asylum seekers for inspiration. And one of the things that we do or did in Australia was uh, actually deny reunification and we gave asylum seekers temporary visas so that we would say you would never uh, get a permanent settlement in Australia. Now, one of those aspects has been uh, Ruta has tried to copy and that is delaying reunification of families. Uh, But keeping in mind, these are people who have been accepted, recognised refugees. This is not just an asylum seeker claiming this is someone who is a refugee and being denied the ability to reunite. Now, that has proved ultimately a step too far for two of those parties in the four-party coalition. And I think, Georgina, it's important to keep in mind here, Ruta was one of the European leaders, along with Italy's uh, Giorgia Maloney, who went with Ursula von der Leyen, the EU president, to Tunisia not uh, too long ago. And there they were giving over huge sums of European money to Tunisia in order to keep migrants back, kind of, I guess, a bit of a virtual toe back in in Australian language, keeping migrants from leaving uh, that part of the world before they get to Europe. And that just, I think, underlines how existential this issue is in Dutch politics. That's all come to a head overnight. Uh, Rutter is saying that he will now uh, give his resignation to the king and new elections, probably not before November. So we're in caretaker mode. And one of the other things he's been super important to stress here or super quick to stress here is that nothing will change on uh, Dutch policy when it comes to Ukraine. And, of course, Netherlands have been part of that coalition trying to get fighter jets for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I think that was an important thing to reassure the international community of. But, wow. What uh, used to wake up to on the weekend, Dutch government dissolved. But of course, it doesn't solve the the uh, issue about migrants. I mean, that 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 decision is still still out there. Yes, that's right. And you know, the Dutch government is actually dealing with. I think it's a uh, a doubling. I think I'll have to find the exact figure for you, which I'll get in a sec. But it's it is an an, an enormous surge by anyone's standards of how many asylum seekers are coming into the Netherlands seeking asylum. Of course, this is uh, an issue experienced worldwide and across Europe. It's not just the Netherlands. Um, And Europe itself has tried to come to a solution about how it can, you know, form a system where asylum seekers aren't just... uh, overloaded onto the countries with with borders or with seas like Greece, 
and that these are the distribution of asylum seekers is equal across the block. Um, it's a very vexed policy, Georgina, and, and very few countries have the luxury of Australia's geography and actually what is relatively small flows of asylum seekers and being able to effectively stop them in the way that Australia has. Mm, and send them off to an island. Indeed, and we'll be talking about that island a little later in the program. Well, let's talk about now. Uh, okay. Well. No, I must just tell you something. So as you know, I, I grew up in Zimbabwe and in 1978 when I was a small child, um, it was the height of the civil war there and my father... Uh, was offered a job running a mine on Nauru. A phosphate mine, I imagine. Yeah, and my mum was going to go and be the, the doctor for, for Nauru. Um, and I would have had to have gone to boarding school in Australia. Yes. And I had a new pony. <laughs> and I couldn't take the pony with me. And I was very, very upset. And we didn't go. All because of the pony. Pretty much. That's a real sliding doors moment for I you. I know, right? Wow. It really is. We could have been compatriots. Georgina. I know, right? I mean, you know, we might have met. <laughs> the pony was called Top Ace. She was lovely. She was chestnut. <laughs> well, to- Top A delayed our meeting until London. How about that? How amazing. Anyway, so we nearly went to live in Nauru. And the only other fact I know about Nauru is it has the fastest people on the planet living there. Mm. Nauru is a very complex place. It's a tiny country in the Pacific, a, a population of around 11,000 people. Now, as we're just discussing, you know, one of the options available to Australia, which the UK is trying now to copy in a, in a roundabout way, was this very diabolical, I think even supporters of this policy would agree, it was a diabolical policy in sending asylum seekers who travelled to Australia by boat to basically offshore processing centres or camps. And there were two islands where we did this, Papua New Guinea, uh, Manus Island and Nauru. And for Nauru, it had been devastated, uh, plundered in, in the first instance for its phosphate. Um, its environment was completely stripped. Its deposits ran dry. And for a time, it was actually one of the wealthiest countries in the world. That's how lucrative phosphate mining was for it. That began under colonisation. And Nauru gets back control of its, of its phosphate in its country in around the 70s. But by the 20th century, it's verging on bankruptcy because this wealth has been completely squandered and the country has for a long time had no control over it. And in fact, one of the weird facts about Nauru is it became so wealthy, most people were unemployed by choice. So going to your, uh, I guess, uh, body size stat, that might, here we see the context of how that fits in. So fast forward to now, where is Nauru? Well, Nauru has been hosting Australia's unwanted asylum seekers for the best part of two decades, and Australia pays them hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. It has suffered reputationally because, of course, Nauru was held up to asylum seekers as this god-awful place that you do not want to go to. You don't want to be sent there. You'll languish there for decades. Uh, many asylum seekers did actually take their own lives because the conditions, or well, they saw no way out of, of, of life on that island. And so... It's been uh, a country that's been dragged up in Australia's hardcore asylum seeker policies, actually not through its own fault. Sure, it accepted and helped Australia out with that policy, but it's not Nauru government policy to do that. And so as of a couple of weeks ago, 
finally, the last asylum seekers in that processing centre were taken off the island and moved to third countries. So that's Canada or New Zealand or somewhere else. This also means Nauru now has no permanent income coming in from Australia for this. Now, Australia will give Nauru $350 million to keep that empty processing facility open because it's... Uh, in I guess we could say it's a deterrent effect. That's what the Australian government would argue. But obviously it's a lifeline for Nauru. We can't just take that money out from under them. So Nauru is desperately looking around and saying, well, how do we diversify our economy? What can we do? The phosphate is gone. Uh, the fish stocks, they could continue fishing, but there's limits on how many fish stocks you can take from the ocean. And we don't think that because Australia's stopped the boats, we'll be getting many more asylum seekers coming through that processing centre. So what does Nauru do? Well, uh, in the words of its ambassador, Margot Day, uh, she's the ambassador to the UN and the International Seabed Authority. She says, we look around on Nauru and we have more ocean than land. And what's at the bottom of that ocean? Well, uh, in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, there are uh, miles and miles and miles of potato-sized nodules, Georgina, that contain the the rare critical minerals that the world is desperately seeking for its green transition. And so Nauru has been, since 2011, one of around 30 countries granted uh, exploration licences to go and have a look at how it could bring up some of these potato-sized nodules it's got a company, Nori. Uh, it's a subsidiary of a, of a Canadian company that uses robots to collect these nodules from, from the seabed floor. And in 2022, they did a trial and collected uh, around 3,000 tonnes of these uh, nodules to extract the, the critical minerals. So Nauru says, bingo, here we go. We have got a very viable uh, economic diversification tool. It will help us it, uh, economically and what's more, it will help the world transition to net zero at a time when Nauru itself, like many Pacific Island countries, is so slowly sinking into the ocean because of climate change. But it's not that easy. And one of the problems, of course, is that many of the same countries who are very worried about China's dominance of the supply of critical raw minerals are also concerned that deep sea mining would be very, very harmful to the mm. environment and the underwater ecosystem. And they say at the moment uh, there's not even enough research to show what damage could be done and mining is not the answer to a green transition. So Nauru is in a very difficult place, in literally caught between a rock and a hard place yeah, here. Yeah. And it has gone to the International Seabed Authority, which has a big meeting on Monday, um, to ask it, actually tomorrow in Jamaica, to ask it to actually just pull its finger out, give us the regulations and the framework for mining. We need to press ahead. It's been too long. So a really, really interesting question here. And when I put... Uh, that specific point about the countries who want a moratorium. These are countries like France, New Zealand, uh, Germany is among them. Um, and Fran the French Parliament has actually voted itself to ban deep sea mining. So that's how strongly they feel about it. And when I asked uh, the ambassador this very question, she says, well, you know, we don't go into this with our eyes closed, having the experience of phosphate mining and what that did to our country. But she says, and quote, 
The misunderstanding is that any human activity does not have risks. Every activity has risks. And the risks of not doing anything with this current climate crisis is much bigger for us. It's an existential threat for the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So a very, very interesting dilemma posed for the international community about whether they will allow deep sea mining. Uh, Keep in mind, Nauru is just one of 30 countries, but we've highlighted Nauru because it's the one facing the threat from climate change. And here is a potential way of helping the world speed up its reduction of greenhouse emissions. But you also have some of the international community saying, well, not that way. Yeah, yeah. Have you been to Nauru? Well, it's an interesting question you ask that. Um, I have been working on this story for some time and part of the the delay in getting this story actually written was trying to get to Nauru. Now, Nauru is basically uh, controlled in this way by the Australian government. So it would be ultimately up to the Australian government whether journalists could go. And they traditionally have always forbidden Australian journalists from going because they don't want them to see the conditions on the uh, Asylum Seeker Processing Centre. This was a very, very heated debate um, in Australia for, you know, two decades. It's, it's really been quite vexed and emotional one. And secrecy and control has always been part of the governments, whether it's been the coalition government or a Labor-left government, that has always been part and parcel of how they have managed this really, uh, the cruel elements of this policy, because the further they can keep it out of sight and out of Australia's mind, uh, the easier it is, of course, to justify some of the very, very inhumane measures that were required to stop asylum seeker boats travelling to Australia. Mm. So the answer is no? The answer is no. I would like to go to Nauru. I, I in the course of this um, article I wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald, I, I did, read a lot of blogs, actually, from intrepid people who had managed to get to Nauru. There's some people who uh, have designs to go to every single country in the world, and they talked about getting to Nauru. It's actually very difficult. You can go via Australia or a couple of other Pacific islands, but actually there's barely any flights. They, they kind of look like they exist on the internet, but they don't really. So uh, I think you really have to do go under official auspices to get there um, easily. And uh, it would be a long trip, but the best way to get there is really from Brisbane, Australia. So maybe one day I will get to Nauru. I would like to go and see it. Um, It's been a country in Australia's lexicon and psyche for so many years. And I was Mm. actually saying that to the ambassador. It's so... Uh, it was the first time I'd actually talked to somebody from the Nauruan government, despite being a, a journalist in Australia for so long, talking about this country in a, in a very specific way. Yeah, extraordinary. I've just been reading about the traditional dance is called the fish dance. The fish dance. Well, that's very appropriate. Isn't it? Just. Let's carry on talking about dancing, because until the 15th of July, Sadler's Wells Theatre here in London is hosting the 2023 iteration of the Flamenco Festival. Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to the founder of the festival, Miguel Marin, and he began by asking him to explain some of the stereotypes about flamenco. Well, like the costuming, or if there is no polka dot, there is no flamenco, if there is not uh, some, if he was not gypsy, was not flamenco, um, a lot of uh, ethnic, it was, has to be like something very ethnic. It has to be like a group of dance, it couldn't be like a solo dancer. Uh, a lot of ideas, right? it has to be like a macho man. So there are many, many stereotypes of Spanish culture also related to flamenco. So is it one of those things that people get really precious about, that they have really hidebound ideas of, of, of what it should be like? Used to be, but I think this has changed a lot and it's not like that anymore. 
Um, and we have the opportunity to prove that last year. One of the shows that has been most successful in the whole festival was Viva of Manuel Lignan, which is a queer flamenco show. People were crazy with the show. And so that proves that people are not expecting anymore the macho mm -hmm. <laughs> or the polka dots, and they are really open to something that is really genuine and true. But in that 20 year period that you've been doing this, have you seen flamenco, the art form, evolve? Is it something that still adapts? Obviously it has roots going a long way back in Spanish history, but is, is, it, is it your hope that something like this will help keep it modern and, and keep it moving? Well, this is, this is the reality. And thanks God that the artists are, uh, some artists are still very traditional because that is what motivates them. But many artists, what motivates them is to create something new. That is their engine to create. So that is what is keeping flamenco alive. I'm very happy to see that 20 years ago, maybe flamenco was a small box. And today is a huge box where there is so many different proposals and so many different people can relate to it. Not only people that are looking for something traditional, but also if you're looking for something contemporary, if you're looking for music, something experimental, avant-garde, you can find everything in flamenco. And that is something new that was not like that 20 years ago. Do you still feel like, though, that it is um, specifically and distinctively Spanish? Well... Not really. I mean, the origin is Spanish, but you, are, you could be amazed by the level of artists that there are in different places of the world. For example, we have one show with uh, Florencia Oz, that is going to be a rich mix, <laughs> that she's from Chile. And she's one of the most amazing dancers that there is today. There is an amazing Taiwanese dancer who won, there is an award in Spain of the best dancer, and she won the award on top before any of the Spanish artists. So I think what is happening, people, artists are taking flamenco, but they are not trying to be more gypsies than the gypsies. <laughs> that is what used to happen before. They wanted just to be the, the gypsy style, but this is not your route. Now they fusion, they combine their background with flamenco and they can do something very original and relevant. That is something new. So probably a better question then is what are the qualities in flamenco that you do think have a universal appeal? I mean, I guess in, 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 is it in a similar way to which uh, you know, American country music has an appeal far beyond the southern states of the United States? Yes. I think in a way, the origin of flamenco mm. make it relevant to very many different cultures because flamenco is the, the melting pot of gypsies that came from India, so it's Indian culture, Jewish, Arabic culture, and uh, Western culture that was in Spain, the, the Iberian culture. So this mix makes the sound is uh, familiar and uh, touch to many, many different people. So I think that the origin already is, uh, is very special. But also flamenco is, is not about telling a story is about emotions. And that emotion, which, when the artist is connected with that emotion, people can feel it. Many people ask, but do, do foreigners, do uh, British people understand flamenco? And I say, that's not the point. You don't need to understand flamenco. You need to feel it. And you can feel flamenco because of this. 
The theme of the festival this year is the Spanish guitar, and we're about to hear an actual demonstration of how special the Spanish guitar is, certainly when compared to somebody who can't play the guitar very well. But how would you define what is special about the Spanish guitar? Well, this year we are celebrating the 400th anniversary of the creation of the Spanish guitar by Vicente Spinel. And I think it's a, it's a great uh, occasion to showcase different styles, because one very important will have the, the show of uh, Olga Perisette, which is called La Leona. La Leona is the first flamenco guitar, so she's doing from the dance side an homage to the flamenco guitar. Um, but also we'll have many of the most important guitarists today from classical Spanish guitar, like is Jose Maria Gallardo, jazz and flamenco, like Nino Josele, the great, great master Rafael Riqueni, who will do a very special concert just by himself, great master Vicente Amigo, who is, he has been here many other times. So I think it's uh, people we can see also what, how the guitar has evolved. We also we have experimental artist Raúl Cantizano doing crazy, crazy things with the guitar. So I think it's a great opportunity to see the guitar in a different way and to see the wide variety of approaches. Perfecto. Hola, soy Keiko Baldomero, eh, guitarrista de España de flamenco. So basically what I'm looking for here is a, what's a really simple flamenco thing you can teach to somebody who plays guitar quite badly. <laughs> Soleá, por ejemplo. there speaking to Miguel Marin before subjecting us all to his attempt at flamenco music. Now we're back in the studio with Latika Burke. She is a journalist, an Australian journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and we're having a look through some more of the stories that you've spotted today, uh, Latika. Now there's one story that has absolutely been making headlines all over the world uh, this week uh, because it's the fastest growing app in history. To thread or not to thread, Georgina? Absolutely. I'm threading all the way. Uh-huh. I'm Me too. Flipping the bird. Flipping the, the bird. Well, at the other place. <laughs> yes, of course. Elon Musk is slowly killing Twitter one tweet at a time. And Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who is, of course, 
very well known for successfully stealing the ideas and copying and pasting uh, social media apps onto his own, has launched a new one called Threads. And it's a little bit like Twitter, not not quite like Twitter, actually. Um, but it feels very much like a retro Twitter. I would say it feels like Twitter back in when we were all using iPhone, maybe, mm. what were they, one, two, three, mm. back in that day. Um, and so it's got a quite a nice organic feel now. It's had 70 million signups in first 48 hours, according to Zuckerberg. And he says that this absolutely exceeded their own expectations, way beyond our expectations, he said in a thread. So that could be a bit of PR. Um, they may have expected that, of course. But it is by anyone's standard a very successful launch. And the other thing to keep in mind is this is not even launched in the EU yet because of EU privacy regulations. So uh, Meta doesn't or can't launch it there yet. So 70 million without even the EU involved is is quite something. It really is, isn't it? Um, I, I, I see you're on it. In fact, I've just sent a thread. I was about to say tweeted, but of course it's not tweeted. Is what, it? what do what we do, do to each other? Do, do we thread say? or? Yeah. And I'll have you also noticed that there's kind of, I, I have some really odd people on my time. I mean, yes, this I, is you a know, problem. I'm, I'm not interested in football or F1. And yes. All of that kind of thing is, is coming up. I keep um, getting lad Bible. And sorry, lads, <laughs> I'm not your target market for many reasons. Um, um, yes, I think, look, it's in its very early stages, literally a couple of days old. A couple of things that are interesting about it. One, it's heavily, heavily skewed towards pop culture, I mm. think. So you're seeing lots of celebrities. And this is because it's lifted Instagram following straight onto your thread following. And for me, Instagram is a very different place to Twitter. Twitter Completely. is always news, politics, breaking, yeah. breaking live events. That's certainly how newsmakers use Twitter. They don't use Instagram for the same reasons and deliberately so. Meta has said it doesn't really want uh, to use Facebook and, and Instagram for news anymore. And so they've come out today and also said the same thing with threads, that our goal is actually not to create Twitter and politics. We want a nice, happy environment here. We don't want the aggro and the polarisation that occurred on Twitter. Now, I think that's probably, if that is if that is their direction, stated direction, and they execute that, that could be... Uh, I think, a start of the end for threads because that's not what people who are mm. jumping over want. They do want a replication of Twitter. They do want to be able to talk about the news. They do want to talk about politics. And Georgina, maybe they even want to thread about us and what we're <laughs> saying right now and join in the conversation. Who knows? Absolutely. You are Latika Enberg. <laughs> I am Latika And Enberg. I'm on, on this one, for, and I'll tell you why in a second, I'm Georgina C. Godwin on threads because uh, when I initially signed up to uh, Instagram, I did it in my own name and then instantly forgot the password. So every time I try and change my name to my real name, it says that that account's already taken. <laughs> oh, Georgina. <laughs> Which is very silly. But anyway, so uh, Georgina C. Godwin on threads and we have been threads about this. But how on earth would you police that? I mean, how can you say, right, no politics? I mean, it's almost impossible to keep it off, isn't it? AI and algorithms will essentially uh, suppress uh, threads. So they will be seen and shown to other users uh, less. And that's something that's already, I mean, that's what Facebook Meta does on Facebook to depress circulation of news. Uh, it does it on Instagram as well. And you'll notice even on Twitter, if you link, if you include a link in your original post, it will suppress that that tweet rather than if you just post text or a photo, which is why you often see accounts not using a, a link as their main 
resource in a first post, I use a photo which then removes mm. the link. Mm. So, um, yes, there are certainly ways that Meta can kill news distribution on threads if they want to. I think that would be an extremely foolish move. And I also think the idea that they're going to create a happy, nice space on the internet is uh, naive, perhaps noble, but it's uh, naive at best and perhaps uh, completely la-la at worst. Mm, mm. Of course, there is one big uh, British political story that is all over Twitter today and not so much on threads. We won't go into it very much. It's just, but it's an, uh, an email's been released about a former minister in the government. He's getting married today and this is a, a list of accusations about things he's alleged to have done um, and uh, Twitter is full of it. <laughs> if you if you have a look at email on there and threads, not so much. So maybe they're um, they're, they're achieving uh, their goal in, in that. Well, I think one of the, the big problems threads is going to have is I actually don't think, I think what's happening to social media is exactly what happened to mainstream media 20 years ago, which is uh, it's completely broken down in terms of how um, it can make money. And so what you're seeing is uh, fragmentation of mainstream social media companies. And I don't think we'll ever get the user base on threads that, that Twitter had. I could be wrong, um, but I think there's a very specific reason why people joined Twitter initially. There's a reason why they stayed on it. There's a reason why those who are still on it hope that it might get better or de-elont. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't think that we'll ever probably have a heyday of the social media years of, say, 2009 to maybe, what, 2013, where it was just really rich and everybody was on it and contributing. I think the world has vastly changed. The models have vastly changed. And I also think people are fatigued by a lot of volume and content overload. And so a lot of people, I think, will actually just take this opportunity to to break once and for all. Mm, that's why I love Instagram. It's just I just put pictures of my dog up, really, and that's all it's about for me. I like Instagram, but I use it solely to only follow people I know who are my friends. Yeah. So it's a very different it's experience. It's very personal, isn't it? Instagram, yes. it feels much more personal. Yes, yeah. and living abroad, as you and I do, it's a nice way to keep in touch with friends and family at home, which is actually the original kind of reason why Facebook was successful. Um, but Twitter, I think there is an absolute market for something like Twitter. I think it will be heavily used and concentrated amongst influencers, you know, journalists and, and newsmakers, uh, not influencers in terms of Kardashian types. Uh, I mean people who actually influence policy and, and government. Um, whether Threads is it, I, I'm not so sure. I think it's got a lot of opportunity and a lot of hope, but they will need to tweak their stated mission if, if for that to be successful. I think we'll leave it there because we've both got to go off and uh, check our social media feeds. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to Latika Burke, also to our studio engineer in London, Tamsin Howard, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. And playing us out is London Flamenco Festival guitarist Keiko Baldomero. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.